Welcome to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Grant Smith, and I'm joined by my co-host Louisa Lim, former China correspondent for the BBC and NPR, now at the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University. As ever, we're on air thanks to support from the Australian Centre for China in the World. We're recording from Double X Studios in Canberra this month. For anyone involved with China, the most pressing issue right now is the fate of the Uyghurs, an ethnic Turkish minority who live in the northwest province of Xinjiang. The United Nations has concluded that it has credible reports that about a million Uyghurs are being held in these camps. Last episode, we heard from Uyghurs in Australia whose families have been detained in mass re-education camps. None of the accounts can be independently verified, but many of the details corroborate each other. This month, we're going to try to unpick the factors behind these mass incarcerations. First, though, a reminder of what Uyghurs outside China are reporting through a conversation with Nur Muhammad, who lives in Adelaide. He refers to Xinjiang as East Turkestan. In one of our interviews yesterday, um, we heard that an entire、um, village, all the men between the ages of fifteen and fifty, had been taken away. Is this a common story in your community? This is this is very common stories.、Um, you, the whole villages, or sometimes in the whole township, is destroyed by the authorities deliberately by taking the all males from the community. I was in Turkey in 2016, and a man who came out from East Turkestan has described the situation to me, stating that in Yupurga County, Yupurga is located in Kashgar, in the south part of East Turkestan. He stated that you know everyone in the community, males born after 80s were taken, males born after 80s were taken, and deliberately taken. No one knows what happened to them. After all, then in Karakash, they stated that almost everyone in the town, in the town, in the, not in the village, in the town, were taken. In Kiria, forty-five percent of the whole population were taken. In Ulja, where in North Bat, the whole Uyghur community in the, in the townships, not in the central area, central city, rather in the township, the males were taken.、Uh, in Kucha, for example, Kucha was. The pure Uyghur township, but in Kucha these days, even the Chinese media or the independent accounts stated that you know no one living in the community is safe. All the education, farming, or business, or other normal social life were completely ruined by the recent wave of crackdown. We asked Nur Muhammad what had happened to his family. This is what he said. I lost contact with my family starting from early 2017. Before the Chinese government restricted or monitored my contact with my family members, isolated them、uh, from other communities. My younger brother, who is still living in my hometown, had four children, and we named them. We named them. Please, we named them. The first one is Mujahideen. Mujahideen. That means the people. Person who fights for his religion. Second one, I named him Sumaya. Sumaya was the the first female martyr in Islam. Then I named the third one Ibrahim. Ibrahim is the prophet in Islam, or in in、uh, um, the divine religion as a major prophet. 
Then the number four we, we call Aziza. Aziza means the highly reputable. They were all forced to change their names before the actual harm happened. Forced to change their names. It's just an astonishing assault on the individual identity when you're told to change your first name, isn't it? The whole name, whole name, you need to change it. And then... Their surnames as well? As well. Um, they, they, they were forced to change. They were forced to pay heavy fines for the children who were born beyond the family, family policies. In the past, last 10 years, I supported my family by sending money from Australia. My last money I sent was to my brother in 2017. That money not reached to him. Brother is, is taken by the authorities. Under the name of you receiving a fund from overseas separate actors. Then he was, he was taken. He's lost. I have no idea where he is now. Where his children. How the young kids are, are surviving. My own family relatives. Or my own former friends or colleagues who worked me. Already taken. Already taken. Who had a one, one night together with me sleeping in the same house were taken already. The, the school teacher who worked with me and who has given me some support during my employment, he's taken. The businessman who provided financial assistance to me on my departure from China, taken. All his 37 family members are taken because of his connection with me. And I'm carrying the burden of his family's suffering too. Can't you provide an assistance to your neighbor? Can't you give any anything to your neighbor? We sent money to in the past from 2005 to 2009. I used to send all my the religious obligation charity zakat or the, you know the the sacrifice value of the money or the you know the amount of the money that you know we should give to the, on the birth of the children. All these donations I sent to my home country, and the one who received the fund now charged. Stating that you received assistance from an overseas separate overseas terrorist. Where where is justice? I can't see what's the relevance if if you help someone from the compassion, human rights value, and then now the government is deliberately taking you to to link with something which you have never done, which you have never committed. Why? In the past week, Beijing's released new legislation drafted by the Xinjiang legislature, which justifies interning Uyghurs. It states local governments can use what it calls vocational training centres to eliminate extremism through what it calls thought transformation. This includes teaching Mandarin and implementing ideological education. There's also a list of behaviour that could lead to detention. These include wearing a burqa, having what is described as irregular beards or name selection, even refusing to watch state-run television. Most chilling of all, a category which simply says other speech and acts of extremification. Few Chinese officials have spoken publicly about why this is necessary. But at the end of August, a senior United Front official called Hu Lianhe spoke at a United Nations committee, this is what he said. The Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region 
always respects and guarantees the human rights of people of all ethnic groups and protects the freedom rights of citizens of all ethnic groups according to the law and on an equal footing. There are no such things as re-education centers. It must be pointed out that Xinjiang is a victim of terrorism in an effort to secure the life and property of all ethnic groups in the region, Xinjiang Weber Autonomous Region has undertaken a special campaigns, campaigns to crack down on violent terrorist activities according to law and put on trial and imprisoned a number of criminals involved in serious offences. For the long view of how we got to this point, we went to two scholars of Xinjiang based in Australia, David Brophy from the University of Sydney and Tom Cliff from the Australian National University. Let's start with a quick overview of what we know. David, you were in Xinjiang last year. What did you yourself see and experience on the ground there? That's right. I was in Xinjiang for a short trip towards the end of last year. Um, And it was just before the news about the camps had actually broken. So I wasn't really keeping an eye out for any any new camp-like structures, but I certainly saw a lot of the new policies, the other policies that that people have been talking about. It really strikes you from the moment you arrive, the the, the ubiquitous presence of new police stations uh, in Xinjiang, uh, checkpoints on, uh, on all the major streets. It's very common sight to see people out patrolling the streets, being drilled in um, so-called counter-terror drills. We're talking here about, you know, elderly men and women carrying large baseball bats around um, as part of this. I I saw people going out for weekly um, flag-raising ceremonies where everyone is um, required to sing the national anthem um, and um, swear their allegiance to, to the party. I came across some new boarding schools, which um, where children, local children, have been um, sent to study in a in a more of a sort of, sort of sinophone environment um, during the week, restricting contact uh, with their their parents. And, you know, I witnessed a very shrill tone in the uh, in the media. Uh, I saw a lot of very obvious signs of the crackdown that's going on. So it seems that since then, the new normal has really shifted quite a lot. Some of the reports that we've seen have said that in some places up to 10% of the male population has been sent to these re-education camps. I mean, Tom, what do we know about why people are being sent to these camps and what is going on inside these camps? Um, the people who are getting sent to the camps basically fall into three categories or there's you know, three basic reasons. One is if you're Uyghur and Islamic um, and you uh, actively performing that sort of uh, religiosity, then then you are a high candidate for going to the camps. If you've been overseas or have any connections with people overseas, especially in Islamic countries, then you're another sort of candidate. Um, and then the other one is if you've done anything really small, like, for example, setting your watch to the local time, because Xinjiang is so much further west than Beijing, the sun in summer can set at 9.45 p.m. So People have a, a, there's a, there's a sort of idea called Xinjiang time and people, a lot of people in Xinjiang used to go by Xinjiang time. Mm. So people would eat lunch at two o'clock or three o'clock in the afternoon. So observing that. I mean, that, that's, that's, that's absurd because I remember the two bus stations in Kashgar used to run on two different times. There was one that ran on Beijing time and one that ran on Xinjiang time. Like it's quite an ingrained habit. I, I, I don't know how that becomes a, an object for persecution. 
you know, what used to be okay at, at different stages of, of history, recent, very recent history, is now long, no longer okay. So having software on your phone or videos on your phone, which are fairly innocuous Islamic content, can be grounds for being taken in uh, to these camps. But taking a long historical overview, um, as both of you have taken a historical perspective on your work in Xinjiang, um, Tom on Han settlers and David on your um, research into the history of the Uyghur nation. Um, David, I know I'm asking you to um, sum up and bastardise years of research in one answer, and let me apologise for that. Mm. But what is the Uyghur nation and why is it a challenge to Beijing? When I first became interested in, in Xinjiang, it seemed to me that there was a there was a certain paradox in the um, the nature of the um, the ethnic uh, autonomy system because on the one hand the party state did, did recognise the existence of a, a, a Uyghur nation, um, but on the other hand it was um, you know it was very active in policing expressions of, of Uyghur nationhood, and as I looked into the history of this. Um, this discourse uh, around the Uyghur nation, it led me across the border into connections with Russia and the Soviet Union, uh, and also with the, um, with the Islamic world, um, with the, the Ottoman Empire. So that, to put it very briefly, I mean, the story of the Uyghur nation is that this is a, you know, like most nationalisms, this is a, this is a modern phenomenon that emerged in the, in the early 20th century at the intersection of various intellectual and political trends that spilled across the borders of, of Xinjiang. And I think that that's, that's why there is such sensitivity um, around this issue from the point of view of the, um, the party state, because Beijing's always been very reluctant to, um, to concede that the history and identity of its ethnic minorities uh, transgresses the political boundaries of, um, of China. So, there's a long story that I, I detail in my book about um, how all this played out. It's, it's very much tied up with the, uh, the history of Soviet nationalities policy in the 1920s and the shadow that that cast uh, on Xinjiang because, you know, in the 30s and 40s, Xinjiang was more or less a, a Soviet satellite. And, um, and so that was how the Chinese Communist Party inherited Xinjiang, one there, where there was quite a strong nationalist discourse um, at least among the elite. When we're looking at the economic development of Xinjiang, the most important role in it was played by Han settlers, the Bingtuan, the Army Construction Corps. Um, Tom, it's your turn to just sum up all your research in a few pat sentences. But can you tell us what kind of role the Han settlers played? Were they brought there in massive numbers just for economic development purposes? Or was there more to it? Well, in, in succinct, the, the history was when the, the PLA came into Xinjiang, there was a lot of uh, Kuomintang, the, the, the uh, nationalists in that place, uh, and then they mutinied or surrendered to the PLA, and then they had lots and lots of soldiers in, in that. So both armies were there. So all of those people or the majority of the PLA and all of the GMD were basically made into uh, settlers. Um, and so they were sent out to irrigate and then farm marginal land. So that was the sort of the first wave of, of settlement. And they were mostly men, so they had to get uh, wives coming in. So then there was these series of waves of, of wives who were also state-organized, and then there was ones which were not so state-organized, and then ones that were completely not organized by the state, but facilitated by the fact that there was all these men in farming communities, militarized farming communities, 
on the borders, which were to do with um, suspicion of the Soviet Union and also not wanting people to cross the borders. So like making those borders hard because um, as far as I'm aware, those borders had been fairly porous and a lot of back and forth. Um, whereas when the PRC was set up, they wanted to make the nation state. They wanted to make hard borders there. And so that was part of the reason, I would say, to to um, to put those people there, to really clarify the borders and maintain stability. Right, and you've talked about these civilians as the embodiment of the state, the embodiment of the Han, right? Yes, indeed. I mean, if you have civilians on the ground, then you have a claim to that being a part of the nation. You know, if you have Han civilians, then it can be part of the Han nation or China, PRC. Um, but if you don't have civilians there, then really the claim is much weakened. Um, if you only have military, it's, it's, it's called the frontier of control, then it's frontier of settlement is a much stronger claim. My take on the Bingtuan would be that. And then post-Bingtuan, we had a, a number of different other waves. David, it seems that in the last couple of years, there have been quite a few books that have come out written by Western academics that have explicitly talked about China as a colonizer in Xinjiang, using the word sort of colonizer and colonialism. Uh-huh. I mean, why, why do you think the academic community has begun talking about Chinese colonization um, in that way? Why that choice of words? <sighs> Well, I, I, I suppose there's um, there's a few um, sort of intellectual reasons for this, and, and there probably some political reasons uh, as well. It's not actually a new thing to describe the Chinese presence in Xinjiang as a colonial presence. Some of the British officials who went there in the 19th century and in the early 20th century used that kind of uh, language to to describe the situation. I, I think that um, there has certainly been a shift in the literature towards and I'm a historian of the Qing dynasty, basically, and there there's, there's been a sort of explosion of literature about the um, the frontier more generally. And I think certainly when you're looking at the late Qing period, it's it's very hard to um, talk about this in any other uh, in any other terms. And I mean, the Chinese officials at that time, the late republic, the late Qing governors into the early Republican period, and they, they consciously drew parallels between what, uh, what they were trying to do in Xinjiang and, you know, what, for example, Japan was trying to do in, in Hokkaido or what European powers were trying to do elsewhere. I mean, I, I do think we, also, we do have to acknowledge at the same time that um, there were overlapping uh, empires in, in Xinjiang, that um, to some extent China was able to hold on to Xinjiang uh, because of the fact that Britain and Russia had decided that... Um, that neither of them really wanted it, and that this could serve as a buffer um, between Russia and, and, and India. You know, in that sense, out of weakness, you know, a lot of Chinese colonial policies, we can describe them as colonial in, in intent, but simply didn't have the resources um, or power to, to back them up. So, you know, we can certainly draw comparisons between the late Qing efforts to Sinify the children of, of Xinjiang through a, a compulsory Chinese schooling system um, but that all broke down fairly quickly. Um, clearly, what we're dealing with today is um, is something quite different. You know, I think in the back of the minds of um, Chinese officials from the um, founding of the PRC has been um, the idea of using a hand presence in Xinjiang as a backup, uh, as a security guarantee. I, you know, I think that that, um, that is the underlying philosophy uh, up until quite recently. And then going back to the Qing dynasty even, the, the Chinese state's approach to... Um, 
dissent and opposition, whether you're talking about Xinjiang or talking about you know peasants in um, uh, in the interior, has usually been to to talk about you know a few bad apples are spoiling things for for everyone else, and that and that's been the way they've talked about um, um, separatists and and terrorists in in Xinjiang for some time. That um, these were people, um, you know, a minority. They um, they were, um, you know, despised by the majority of population. These were people from outside coming in, and there's clearly been a shift now in the way people think about this. That this is this is something that is actually widespread. This this disaffection that they associate with uh, Islamic extremism. So I would say in in relation to sort of um, a traditional Chinese approach to this this type of situation, that strikes me as something quite quite different. Yeah, I mean, to, to, to move it just slightly forward, Tom, you've written about the impact of, of Wang Jin's ideology in Xinjiang in the 1950s on, on Uyghur policy today. Could you explain to our listeners who is Wang Jin and why is he still an important figure? Well, Wang Jin was the general who led the PLA troops I was talking about before um, into, into Xinjiang in 1949. And then he was the head of the military government until 1954. And so he was also the head of the Bingtuan. And he was the guy who was, I mean, he was coming from a farming background. He was very, you know, with the people sort of um, brutal guy who took this boyish pleasure in, in making irrigation channels, um, making uh, Uyghurs who had, you know, say, for example, one example would be the villagers, uh, a village commits a crime against a, a Han person by, uh, for example, the Han person eats some pork in there and then the, um, the villagers, a Uyghur village, uh, kills that guy or beats him up, Wang Jin would get the entire village and force them at gunpoint to to eat pork or just wipe them out. He was extremely brutal. I wanted to go back to um, what you were saying, David, about uh. this move towards de-radicalization uh. and dealing uh. with extremists. Uh. I mean, I had my first experience in Xinjiang was in 2003 when I went on a foreign ministry tour, uh, uh. which was <laughs> 10 days in a minibus with the foreign ministry on a journalist tour of Xinjiang, which was an experience in itself, one that I probably would not repeat for a very long time. Uh. Um, but the most interesting point was we were in uh, Khotan, Khotien, and we uh. were taken to a museum of terrorism above the uh. police station. And the museum of terrorism was extraordinary because it was full of totally unterrorist things. It was full of, you know, copies of the Quran, kitchen uh. knives, grenades that looked like they'd been dug up in the Second World War. But it was also about that time that we saw the Chinese kind of piggybacking on the war against terror and introducing the idea of ETIM, the East Turkestan uh -huh. Islamic Movement, as a, you know, a international terrorist organization that needed to be clamped down upon, uh -huh. um, you know, and was used as a justification for a clampdown. And then later, we did actually begin to see, you know, at the time, analysts saw that analysts seemed to feel that ETIM was possibly, you know, a very tiny fringe group, possibly uh. made up. But then we did begin to see these um, attacks by Uyghurs in railway stations and public uh. places. Either of you, how would you interpret what happened? Did China create a threat where there was none or where there was a very tiny one by, by completely overreacting? I wouldn't quite put it that way. I mean, there's always been on the margins of politics in Xinjiang people who have 
had it in them to to commit acts of, of violence. There's, there's been um, you know intense uh, levels of, of desperation among uh, among some Uyghurs for, for for some time now. It, it is the case that there were groups of unknown size in parts of Central Asia, in, in, in Pakistan for a period. That seems to have become impossible now for, for Uyghurs. And we, we have started to see a few Uyghurs make their way uh, further afield into, into, into Syria. So there's no point denying that, that any of this is going on. But um, within Xinjiang itself, the, the conflict there, such as it is, has always been to my mind, much more demilitarized and much more disorganized than um, China has has presented it. To my knowledge, there's yet to be any evidence of any of the groups outside China having any hand in uh, in attacks that have occurred. Although they might from time to time claim responsibility, those those claims of responsibility have not been um, not been very convincing. And I, I think now the situation is that um, you know China really has a chokehold. Um, on the um, entry and exit points outside of Xinjiang. But clearly it got into the heads of Chinese officials that they were on some kind of trajectory towards uh, greater violence breaking out. That's, that's at least the way it's been, been presented. So there's been editorials suggesting that China was on the verge of becoming, Xinjiang was becoming uh, China's Libya, um, which if you think about, you know, the state of affairs in Xinjiang in 2016 or 2017 is, is a ridiculous claim to make. But it does give us some insight into the thinking um, of the party that um, effectively I think they've given up. And I think that that is a factor um, in why we've seen the, the crackdown that we've seen. It's less about there's an impending problem than there's an impatience to do this thing because of what else they want to do. You know, to finish off this problem, to get rid of the, what they see as a problem in Xinjiang and then continue on with other projects. Um, so I would I would say one of those projects is to exert a more unified sort of mode of social control over the whole country. You know, I, I was lucky enough to visit Xinjiang for a long time, um, just the year before in 2002, and I saw my own terrorist museum in, in Tashkurgan, which which did have some real and quite genuinely terrifying pictures of, of, of people shot dead. Um, but what struck me um, in 2002, immediately in the aftermath of 9-11, was what you had was not so much a war on terror as a war on architecture. There was a massive push to literally demolish vernacular architecture and re- model cities, holus bolus. Um, Tom, thinking about your work, um, do you think this partly contributed, if you like, to the, the kind of the separation out of the Han community and, and the Uyghur um, and other minority communities? Yeah, I, I think so. The, this is, uh, you know, the urbanisation and the construction of industry, factories and uh, the type of work that, that Uyghurs are now being channeled towards in Xinjiang and outside of Xinjiang, is a part of the whole grand project, if you like, call it with a capital P. Um, it's, there is this, this crackdown, and as David flagged earlier, there is this sort of developmentalism. Um, and so it's, uh, from my perspective, it would be about shaping those Uyghurs through such institutions as schools, factories, etc. I mean, factories are the ideal one. You know, once you get these young Uyghurs into those institutions and you've, you've got them off the farm and out of their family compounds, so you're cracking up their social structures as if fracking 
rock underneath the ground and to break them up and, and atomize those small family communities and then the bigger community and bring them into uh, Han institutions, the Han-run institutions at the factory and make them more normal, make them more like Han people, make them accord to more uh, the sort of values and norms of the Han populations. But to, to bring it forward historically um, for both of you, another big turning point seemed to be um, the clashes between Han and Uyghur in 2009. How much did these clashes spook authorities to drive them towards what we see today? I wasn't talking to authorities, but I, I was talking to ordinary people, and that certainly spooked the, the ordinary people um, and people in, in the work units and, and the um, migrant workers there. One of the reasons why the authorities might have been spooked, and to a high degree, is because the Han population of Xinjiang were suddenly thinking, this is not a safe place. The, you know, Xinjiang is no longer a place where we can make a future. And so if you don't have that future, if you, if you Han people cannot see a future in Xinjiang, then all is lost, really, because they eventually going to try and get back to, to the rest of China. Um, and so to me, the one of the big scary factors of, of the 2009 upset was, for, for the authorities, was this loss of uh, ideal future loss of that future orientation among the, the Han population. Well, I think what was um, important about the 2009 events was that it was um, it was a moment where it became clear that the party would have to be responsive to the, the sentiments of the, um, the Han Chinese population of, of Xinjiang. So Tom talked earlier about the, um, the, the nostalgia for Wang Zhen. Um, the, the slogan, one of the slogans on the, the Han Chinese rallies was that we don't want Wang Lechuen, we want Wang Zhen, um, calling for the downfall of the, uh, the current party secretary. And indeed, he was removed uh, after that. So, so the, the, the opinions and feelings of the, the Han Chinese population really kind of forced their way into party thinking at that point. And that's a factor when you think about uh, the situation today because it, 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 it makes it very hard to uh, imagine someone in the, uh, the upper echelons of the party in Xinjiang are risking censure from the the Han in Xinjiang by by saying you know we should scale down the security policies we should scale down the policing so it's it's sort of created quite a dangerous dynamic in the whole the whole situation. And can I add to that? The, the irony of that, of course, is that um, now there's a lot of Han in Xinjiang who were very unhappy and unstable, you know, unsettled by all of this um, this big repressive violent action going on around them. Um, people are really stressed by it. So it, it, it's almost a case of be careful what you wish for. And I wanted to ask about the language that we're seeing in the discourse around Uyghurs now, because it's this kind of extraordinary language of pathology, that being Uyghur is almost like a poisonous weed that needs to be killed or a sort of illness. I mean, why do you think those terms are being used, David? Well, I think that um, I mean they're talking about religious extremism as a um, disease, but obviously their definitions of religious extremism do extend into um, you know ordinary areas of Uyghur culture uh, as well. There was a shift in the approach a few years back. Um, we started to see much more of an effort to not just um, prevent people from engaging in um, you know anti-social, anti-party unpatriotic behavior um, or extremist behavior, but 
to actively display um, the signs that one was not influenced by such thinking. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't good enough just to be a sort of loyal, law-abiding citizen. You know, you had to um, actually demonstrate that you weren't um, susceptible to, um, to you know, uh, excessive piety or, um, or religious thinking. You know, so you started to see these ridiculous um, scenes of um, uh, imams, religious, um, learned religious figures in the villages and towns of, of Xinjiang um, being forced to get up and dance. Um, because, um, you know, the religious extremists supposedly were encouraging people not to dance. So if you didn't dance, then you would, um, then you would um, uh, come under suspicion. Now, if you apply that thinking um, across the population, not everyone goes around dancing. Um, not everyone goes around um, smoking and drinking alcohol um, publicly, which, you know, these are the other signs of, of radicalism or extremism. So if you start to think you have to actually sort of um, force the population en masse to display certain behavioural features, you know, you really do start to need to um, think about a kind of a coercive system to entrap the, the population in an environment where they, where they can be drilled um, in, in um, you know, in, in mouthing the right um, forms of um, language and, and thinking. I just want to be super clear what you're both saying, right? Because it appears to me what you're saying is, although this is being framed as um attack on religious extremism. Um, Tom, from what you were saying earlier, it's not, it's an attack on Uyghur identity and Uyghur communities. Yeah. And, and the way of life, the way of life, the, the all the elements of culture, uh, the, including the economic elements of culture and the religious elements of culture and the normal family relations. Um, and David can add lots to that, I'm sure. Oh, I mean, this is a culmination of a, of a long-term trend to, to marginalise um, and sort of belittle Uyghur culture. And, I mean, it looks as if the space for Uyghur language in Xinjiang is becoming even more uh, limited. It's, uh, it's hard to know for sure, but, um, you know, we've heard reports of people being told that, that Uyghur will not be spoken anymore uh, at schools. There's, there's all sorts of various ways in which... Um, Party officials have become paranoid um, towards, you know, very ordinary displays of, of Uyghur culture, as I said. I mean, there was a case not long ago um, of a party official in Kashgar who saw, um, you know, saw people dancing in the course of um, uh, Islamic festivals. Um, at the end of uh, Ramadan, people go out in front of the mosque and, and dance, and, you know, he thought this was a this is a good thing, and this is something that's even sort of promoted in, in tourism videos about Kashgar and so on. Um, then apparently he got wind that um, there was a there was an underlying sort of Islamic motivation for this dancing. It was actually, you know, in origin a, a Sufi form of dancing. Uh, and once he realised this, then he uh, then he banned it. And, and that gives you, you know, an indication of the way that these these officials who are coming out to Xinjiang from the interior quite ignorant about local conditions, uh, local history, you know, reacting with extreme, uh, extreme paranoia um, towards just what has all along been, been very ordinary elements of, of Uyghur culture. So when you have things like that going on, it's very hard not to think of this as a, you know, a, a very direct assault on, um, on Uyghur culture. And I would uh, just iterate the impatience because the language thing is a fantastic uh, example of that. There's been uh, a number of people who have said that if 
they just had the forcible dismissal of Uyghur language basically through schools. That whole generation is going to lose, um, you know, the whole generation of, of school children coming up losing their Uyghur language. Then that immediately dilutes the culture to a, to a great extent. So it would have happened anyway. You know, the party state, the people who are controlling whatever's going on, has just sort of put the accelerator down really hard. And why do you think that is? I mean, these mass re-education camps are quite new. They only started, um, I think, in 2013. But even in the last two years, there's been an enormous ramp up. Um, what What's caused it? Why this rush? I think it's to do with just an impatience that they have to get on with something else. And they can't wait for these wigs to come around to this hard, hard way of being. Uh, you know, it's just, other things to do. We've got the Belt and Road to do. We've got to control this increasingly sort of difficult country to to control um and we can't have these weakest causing a problem yeah that's sort of a glib way of putting it but that's sort of how i'm seeing it at the moment and in the current context i I kind of thinking about the experience of isis and how this mass detention in iraq bred further and much more dangerous extremism do you think there's a possibility that this could backfire on that scale uh, and create horizontal networks among those detained that could be activated in years to come yeah, look, it's um, it's it's always a possibility. I think when you drive people to a certain limit, things become possible that people haven't thought possible before. Um, it would go against the trends in in um, in politics in Xinjiang, as I as I said earlier. Um, oppositional politics is highly disorganised, and I think that um, I think that the Chinese state has quite effective means at its disposal to. Um, to, to prevent anything coalescing. But I do think that there may well be a backlash at some point. What I really worry about is that, you know, you, you may have large numbers of people still in camps while something uh, violent breaks out outside the camps. And then that could have implications for um, the type of regime that's being implemented in, inside the camps as well. And that's, that's quite a troubling thought. But, I mean, one thing is that we're not seeing people coming out of the camps up to 10% of the population, male population is disappearing into camps, then family members are disappearing into camps. And it's not clear what will happen to them. I mean, what could the end game possibly be? That's what I really struggle to understand. I've thought about this too. And I I thought, well, what is the objective of these doing these doing this stuff? And I think um, breaking people, if that's an objective, then why is it an objective? Uh, but what if it's not in the, if that isn't the, the the outcome, and there's able-bodied people coming out, then those horizontal networks that Graham mentioned earlier, and the resentment that we've been talking about, are going to play a part in the future of politics in Xinjiang, and they they won't be a a, a peaceful part. We are hearing talk of moves towards some kind of global Magnitsky Act, putting sanctions on Chinese officials for these massive human rights abuses. Uh, Do you two think that that would work? On the Magnitsky one, it would be symbolic. Um, But whether it would work, I mean, if, if the outcome, if the desired outcome is to stop these camps, for example, um, and these current uh, policies in Xinjiang, then um, I am, am doubtful. I'm equally sceptical about Magnitsky sanctions having much uh, effect. And these were designed for, for Russian officials who probably have houses in London and bank accounts in 
in, in Switzerland. So um, to begin with, I don't know if um, any of these Chinese officials in Xinjiang are particularly vulnerable um, to them. It'll provoke an angry Chinese response. I don't think China will have any difficulty in identifying human rights abusers uh, from the U.S. if they choose to um, go tit for tat and, and apply sanctions on Americans or Australians. I do also think that there's a danger that if we um, if we opt for some ineffective sanctions, then um, then the next step is to talk about more hard hitting sanctions um, that could actually influence. China's behavior. And I think that that would inevitably then um, become bound up with the whole issue of the trade war. That's that's how it would be received uh, in, in China. Um, and then it would be very hard to disentangle the advocacy uh, around the human rights uh, of Uyghurs from America's pursuit of its interests in, in Asia um, and its, um, its, its economic objectives towards China. And I think that's a dangerous place for the Uyghur issue to, to end up if it's too uh, implicated uh, in the wider suite of, of, of American uh, objectives. I think we want to avoid that. One thing that I think we see very little coverage of uh, is, if you like, the structure of the Xinjiang economy, which is quite different to the rest of China. Um, Tom, when I read your work in particular, I, I, I get the impression that large corporate actors have an enormous um, influence over life in Xinjiang. What is the role of these large corporations um, in this crackdown, if you like? Are they um, neutral about it or um, are they in some way... Um, um, if you like, um, driving it. One of the new things in the last five years, or certainly since the 2009 incident, there's been this sort of technology, these technology companies coming in. And um, in fact, it was Western technology companies that were the first to take up the, the security state, the security economy. You know, so there's now a massive economy around security in Xinjiang. And that involves things that are really banal, like feeding out of area army people and getting a contract to do that. So if you get that contract, you know that you have a, a set profit margin. Maybe it's only one tenth of one yuan, which is uh, about one fiftieth of Australian dollar. So two cents. But if you get two cents times all of the people who are out of area, all the military who are out of area for every meal that they eat, then, and, and it's a guaranteed income, then you're making money. And so they're implicated, they're entirely interwoven. These, these private business people, these investors, they're entirely interwoven with this whole uh, securitization project. And then you have more, more bling on the things like development of uh, security cameras, development of surveillance systems. And like I said, the, the, the first one in there was Honeywell. Mm. Immediately after um, uh, the 2009 incident, there was Honeywell, boom, uh, with an office there. It's an opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what actually I should add is that, is, <laughs> that is that there's a lot of talk about Xinjiang being a place where uh, these companies are developing techniques that they're going to then apply back in uh, other parts of China and further afield, perhaps. And that's very possible. The frontier has always been seen as a site of innovation. Tom and David, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Graham. Thanks, Louisa. Thank you very much, yeah. You've just heard Tom Cliff from the Australian National University and before him, David Brophy from the University of Sydney.
You've been listening to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. We're on air thanks to support from the Australian Centre for China in the World. Find us on iTunes, Omni, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our editor is Andy Hazel, and our background research is by Julia Bergen. Theme music is courtesy of Susie Wilkins, and our cartoons and gifts are courtesy of Seb Danter. Bye for now.